Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of this series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Cultivating Spiritual Maturity, an Honest Look at Our Commitments. The talk was given by Lalita on April 16, 2022, via Zoom. Lalita is a spiritual teacher residing in British Columbia, Canada, who has been a disciple of the Western Bowel Master Lee Loswick since 1982. Her teaching style is rooted in the activities and responsibilities of ordinary life. Lalita has extensive training as a master herbalist and healer, and she is the author of several respected books in the field, including 10 Essential Herbs and 10 Essential Foods. Her most recent books are Waking to Ordinary Life and Cultivating Spiritual Maturity. In this talk, Lalita discusses the sadhana or spiritual work that is needed to deepen practice on the path. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Lalita. Welcome, everybody. On this title of my book, Cultivating Spiritual Maturity, I'll just think of some things to throw out there and see if it sparks anybody's thought processes because we are only going to be together a short time. Who knows if you'll ever hear me talk again? Who knows if you'll ever see me in your life again? You never know. And this might be a moment where, as one of my friends, acquaintances has said, if you want the juice, you've got to squeeze the lemon. So I'm the lemon in this story. And if you want the juice, you have to squeeze the lemon. So I will uh, make some comments. One of the things that comes to mind with the title of that book, it sounds very friendly, doesn't it? Cultivating spiritual maturity. Sounds like everybody gets to grow up and be nice and you're cultivating things. What could possibly go wrong? If you're coming to a talk like this, my assumption is that you already are interested in spiritual practice and not only just interested, but making the effort to actually participate in the internet, do the Zooming, come to a talk. It's less personal than if I'm right in your face. So you have some degree of necessity and necessity is non-negotiable for cultivating and maturing in our spiritual practice. You've got to have necessity. So sometimes with my own students, I like to give them questions to work with because this is helpful. You go away, you forget everything that Lalit says, but maybe you'll remember a question. So in this case, a question that you might formulate would be, do I have necessity? Where did I get my necessity? Where could I get some necessity? It's really important because cultivating spiritual maturity is not for the faint of heart. It is not a casual affair. It's not democratic. You don't get to vote. You don't even get your opinion half of the time, more than half probably. It's a serious affair 
that goes against your comfort zone. If you're going to cultivate maturing, you can't just hang around like a wimp on the sidelines and say, oh, well, you know, I'm busy. I'm cultivating over here and I hope I get some maturity happening because I have good intentions. You know, good intentions are not enough. Studying all kinds of books is not enough. Being nice sometimes and not nice sometimes and just kind of going about your daily comfort zone is not enough. So I'm assuming that most of you have already done a lot of first steps and now in your lives are in situations where you're making decisions not based on your comfort zone, but more often you might be making decisions based on your spiritual necessity. And one of the things I like to have people work with in my part of home community, I mentioned earlier before some of you came, my school is called Kripa Mandir, completely separate from home community is Lee Lazowitz community. He's my guru. He's my spiritual master. I'm not ashamed to say that the first day I met him, you know, I thought this teaching could really kick my ass forward. And that's what we're talking about here. Cultivating is not a la-la-la affair. It's an ass-kicking affair. It is dangerous. It is risky. It is not for the faint-hearted. And if those qualities, like, you know, we really don't want to have a risk and we don't like it to be edgy, well, then you wouldn't come to my school, for example. People have come to me and I've said, wouldn't it be nice for you to maybe get some meditation training? There's a lot of wonderful spiritual training groups and you get a vote. Isn't that nice? You get to vote and you get to decide what's what. And in my school, everybody decides what's what all the time. Just like any other group, everybody longs to be the boss. But when the shit hits the fan and we're getting serious about cultivating spiritual maturity, we have to decide where's our necessity? What are we willing to risk? Here's a question that is on one of my questionnaires that I have my new students ask. First, I ask the question, what do you expect from your spiritual practice? Everybody fills that in. You know, what do I expect? I expect a common thing is, you know, to become free or to know the truth and things like that. Most people don't read the whole questionnaire ahead of time. So they get to the next part. And the next question is, well, what are you willing to pay? And That is always a confrontive thing. We all know what we want to get. But if the next question is, what are you willing to pay for this cultivating spiritual maturity to really participate in this fiery, delicious, juicy adventure that's possible for a human being? What are you willing to pay? Stuff like, would you pay with your lust? Would you give up lust, greed, anger? Would you pay with compassion? Would you pay money? Would you pay labor? Would you pay attention? Attention is priceless. And looking around many of you here, I think many of you are capable of valuable attention. Attention is a commodity that's quite priceless when somebody is serious about their spiritual practice. Attention is priceless commodity. So regardless of your particular path or the particular school that you grew up in, our particular lineage of gurus, we have Papa Ramdas and then Yogi Ramsarakumar to Lee Lazowick. And then I'm one of the ones that comes after that. This whole flavor of the lineage 
is very much in the mood of inspiring us to understand what resources do we have currently that we could pay with attention. One of our main practices in many different flavors is self-observation. So serious self-observation takes a lot of attention. So most of us casually, we notice, oh, I'm feeling happy or, oh, I'm feeling really bad. We can notice big stuff like that. But when it comes to maturing in these things, we need to refine the details. And that's where you really pay, I must say. It's in the details. We hold our tongue instead of speaking that critical word. We do the dishes when nobody else will because we're paying attention. Oh, nobody, nobody's in the kitchen cleaning up. It's in these tiny details where attention becomes priceless and you end up seemingly accidentally stumbling into a circumstance because you were paying attention and you get information for your sadhana. So I'm always encouraging everyone to develop an aim for your sadhana and then refining that aim. And this is another thing I think if we really want to mature, there's a price to be paid. And we don't often even know the price. That question in my questionnaire that I send to some people when they ask, the response usually is confusion at first. Pay? What do you mean pay? That sounds dangerous. You know, are you going to take my bank account? Some of the first responses, what do you mean? What am I willing to pay? Are you asking for money? Are you asking for my car? You know, change my diet? Like, what do you mean pay? If that's all it was, it would be so easy to pay. But what we pay with is our attention. We pay with our time. We pay with our necessity. So therefore, necessity becomes a priceless commodity. Attention becomes priceless. These are things that anyone can do. When I was a young student with my guru, Lee we were all studying Gurdjieff together. He loved the language of Gurdjieff. He loved the language of what is called a work group and a work school. And Lee had some good friends that were teachers of that particular style. So we often went through periods of training and We all went together as a group through periods of different types of maturing. And depending on where we were at, primarily as a group, certain teachings would be at the top of the list. So we studied Gurdjieff for a while with Lee. We studied Islam and Sufi. We studied Hinduism, Tibetan Tantra, all kinds of things. And it would go through stages. And it was very entertaining often. And we were captivated by some of these things. That's wonderful but it's not enough. And the deeper you go in your practice, you realize that the foundation that we need is always being built stronger. So what is a foundation for this maturing? It's all the stuff that most of you already know. Simple stuff. But again, and some of these things are not negotiable. Exercise, diet, meditation, right livelihood, right sexuality. These things, I'm assuming, because I can see some of you here, I'm assuming it looks clear to me that many of you have these things in place. You have some of this strong foundation in place. And if you assess for yourself that you have some foundation in place, then you can assess for yourself what are you willing to pay? What resources do you have to pay with 
your time, your attention, your necessity. And also you get to decide and assess for yourself. And here's a tricky bet. How much risk can you sustain? And I'm not talking about risk to your life or risk to your bank account. I'm talking about risk of your comfort zone, risk of your dearly held beliefs, risks of your opinions. Could you risk some dearly held opinion? I don't know. Diet's always a big one. Everybody has their opinions about diet and it's non-negotiable. We've got our idea about it. And certainly over the last two years, we've been torn apart with opinions, political opinions, war opinions, medical opinions, science opinions. And when I'm mentioning this word risk, I'm not talking about all those ordinary opinions, although those are pretty harmless to practice with. But I'm talking about could you risk your comfort zone? Could you step into a more fiery deepening of your personal practice because of your necessity to cultivate maturity? This is not for the faint of heart. So I'm going to stop here for a minute. If anybody wants to ask a question or say something or interject or object, you know, you could wave your hand. Yes. You're talking about pain and pain with necessity. And it almost sounds like necessity is a substance that one might pay with. Could you talk about that a little more? Yes. In my opinion, in my experience of decades of working with these things, I just turned 73. So I've got some experience. And I have learned that many of these words that we hear in spiritual practice, we've all read them. Necessity, surrender, submission, love. We've heard these words. And they first hit us usually in the intellectual center. And we think, oh, there's a word. And then we, our next question might be, what does that mean? How do I define that? What does that mean? But these words in their most ordinary sense, yes, it's just a word we can get a definition, but they have a substance. And the substance I'm speaking to is there is a physical chemical substance. There is a subtle mental emotional substance, meaning influence. You could also say an influence. There's a subtle influence. And these layers of influence, it's kind of like a recipe. All of these flavors, these influences of the recipe create what we would call a substance. And it's a many layered activity of what we'll loosely call sadhana. Okay. You know, we all have experienced the substance of something. So I'm going to give you an example. This is a very ordinary example about how the substance of these things, necessity, love, surrender, submission, adoration, freedom, all these words that we like to hear about. We don't like to hear risk, payment, difficulty. We don't like the substance of that, but we wouldn't mind having some substance of necessity as long as it didn't make us feel uncomfortable. We'd all like some nice, juicy, comfortable necessity. And we might have experienced this. Maybe we go to a feast and there's foods there that we really like. And so our digestive juices get flowing and we're smelling it and we like the look of it. And next thing you know, we're thinking, I need that cake or I need a hunk of that, you know, that chicken leg. You know, I've got necessity. I'm hungry. I haven't eaten today. I've been waiting for this feast. You know? And so we're in the most ordinary way, 
all of our senses create an ordinary necessity. Now we're after that turkey leg, you know, we're going to go get the thing. And so in the most neurotic, ordinary sense, that's how we are affected all the time, neurotically acting on these ordinary necessities and the substance of necessity we only recognize it in the most ordinary pieces of the ordinary senses. But as we develop maturing and cultivating this maturity on purpose, when we're cultivating spiritual maturity on purpose, we open up senses that we never knew we had. Many people go through their whole life and they don't even know the potential of a human being. We never even knew that we had we'll just name a number, 10 extra senses that we never knew we had. We thought we had the basic five or six or whatever. We never even knew about all these other ones. And it's the opening up of all these additional senses that creates in us the capacity to actually interact more fully with the substance of something, even the substance of something like necessity. No one wakes up in the morning and thinks, well, I think I'm just going to go get some necessity out of my fridge and eat some necessity today. You know, we don't think like this. We don't wake up interested in necessity. We wake up interested. We have to pee right away or something. You know, we have necessity, just the body's necessity. But there is much more to this substance of necessity than the ordinary senses initially even recognize. And as we mature in this, we open up senses. It's not even opening them. You know, these senses, these Heightened senses of the practitioner, the heart, the heart of the practitioner, this necessity of the practitioner, that's part of the fire, that's part of the fuel that helps to create this expansive maturing of the heretofore, maybe, unknown capacities, senses that are absolutely essential for, here's a term for eating these substances. So we actually eat necessity. There is the way in which we eat necessity. That's kind of a strange thing to think about. How would I eat necessity? It's through attention. It's through true feeling. It's through the capacity to notice necessity. Necessity is not panic. Necessity is not anxiety. Necessity is not lust or greed, even though at first that might be what we are noticing. The substance of necessity is something that we can we can breathe it, we can absorb it, we can interact. It's a type of food. And so there is a way in which we can say substances can be eaten. So substance of love, that sounds nice. Oh, I think I'll eat some substance of love. That sounds really good, but Who wants to say, well, I'm feeling so good today. I think I'll just eat a whole bunch of risk taking or I'm going to eat some discomfort. Won't that be fun? You know, we never we don't say these things. We like to edge ourselves over to our comfort zone. This is not bad or wrong of us. The common habits that we have is to seek comfort, to seek security and certainly to seek control. So if we are really serious about this cultivating spiritual maturity in the sense that I'm pointing to, all of that stuff is on the table. And I'm often asked the questions, well, 
heck, if everything's on the table, what do I get to control? What about me? What about what I want? Here's a question I often get. What can I rely on? What is true? What can I rely on? What's the bottom line truth of something that's never going to change? This idea that we could actually hope that things are not going to change. We want something that won't change. And that's on the table. So are we willing to pay with the discomfort of not knowing shit about anything for sure? What about that? Nobody really wakes up and says, boy, I sure hope I'm confused with nothing to rely on today. I'm ready. You don't say that kind of thing. I wake up and I go, where's my tea? Somebody get me some tea. We all have our little rituals. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. My guru, Lee, he loved a schedule. My personality type, a schedule was practically a death sentence. I hated schedules. I had to really struggle to keep a schedule. But he was all about a schedule. It was comforting to him. And to me, it was very disorienting and irritating and disruptive. But I had necessity. So that was something I paid with. My comfort zone was always on the line in the most ordinary sense because I was really making efforts to follow a schedule. And I failed in many areas, but I succeeded in a lot of areas that were uncomfortable because I had necessity. I still have necessity. I hope to have necessity to my last breath. And if any of you have necessity, I think there's wisdom in sharpening that till your last breath. You know, if you can say a kind word or remember some name of the divine or God or something special, if you can have the presence of mind with your last breath to offer some kind of kindness to the world as your body drops, that kind of necessity that could last till your last breath, that's worth something. That's worth cultivating. That's part of this package, cultivating spiritual maturity. It's an edgy affair. So does anybody have any comments or things to add to this or any questions you'd like to throw in or any other topics of interest that have come to mind now? I hope I've stirred you up. Yeah, for me, what comes up in listening to you, everything is strong and I go, yeah. But then what comes up underneath that is this idea of submission. To actually choose to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation and then the next one and the next one and to not do anything when your ego starts going really crazy. It's like saying yes from the inside. And in my experience for myself, that is one of the hardest things to truly do. And that's come up for me all through my spiritual work. Yeah, I remember. I remember when I first met you, you were a motorcycle ma. (laughs) And your necessity was about that lifestyle. You know, you were a rowdy dude and you had necessity about those things. So when we're really excited about something, it's easy because we like it. And then maybe this didn't happen to you, but what if somebody is excited about their motorcycle career and now they broke both their legs and so now they can't ride anymore and somebody doesn't know this. They call them up and say, you've won the lottery. I'm bringing your new motorcycle. And you think, 
yeah, you know, I don't have necessity about that anymore. My situation has really changed. So what you're describing is that there are things that you can easily say yes to. You might have even said yes in the past, and it's not a yes for you anymore. Maybe. So in this maturing, the yes kind of changes. Right. It's very fluid and flexible. But one of the things we can say yes to, which I think you're hinting at here, is we could say yes to our inner aim, whatever it is. We don't have to like our circumstance. It's fine to say, no, I am not going to have this circumstance. It's fine to say, I'm just not going to participate in that or I'm not going to talk to you or something. But the aim that you hold, the one-pointed, solid, piercing aim of the heart of the practitioner, that yes of that heart, that's something we can say yes to even with our last breath, regardless of all of the other kind of floaty yeses and nos that go along our whole lives as we continue on. So we also have to question, who is it or what is it? Which one of our inner eyes, as Gurdjieff says, which eye is saying yes? I made up this term a long time ago, decades ago, when I was a young healer. I made up this term. I called it majority vote. And that was when you had a lot of eyes inside that agreed on the same opinion. Sometimes they agree so much they get a majority. And so their vote is the strongest. So as practitioners, we can hedge our majority vote onto something that's meaningful to our spiritual practice, like an aim, for example, the aim of our work. Whatever it is, it's different for everyone. And we might start with this, but as you pointed out, it's very difficult. It's even exhausting, I think. It's exhausting to have to decide what to say yes and no to. So if we take that away and we say, okay, that's not the point. We can practice on daily life, certainly, but there's an additional category. We need to expand our view here. There's this additional, larger view of yes. I wrote an essay once. I'm just remembering this because it was a little embarrassing. Eckhart Tolle, a great spiritual teacher guy, wrote this book, then it got on the New York Times bestselling list and all of the movie stars loved it. And it was called The Power of Now. So I wrote an essay that was called The Power of No. And it relates to this power of yes business because most of us, we have no lack of things that we easily say no to. You know, I say no to a stuffy nose. Right now, we've got pollen outside because trees are blasting away. So I, I easily can say no to the pollen or no to my stuffy nose. It's all about the immediate discomfort of something. Or I might have things in my life that are much bigger that I say no to. But we have no lack of no. So since we have so much no and so much experience with, whoa, I can't control that. You know, I want to be right about this. And we have plenty of that. So really cultivating yes whenever we can is more profitable. We can do this in almost any circumstance. And this is a weird twist. This is how my mind thinks. We can use the power of no to simply acknowledge, okay, we've got that covered. We don't even have to worry about that anymore. We don't even have to decide... Should I say no? We already got the no department fully charged and handled. 
And whenever we can, we mature in a yes. And I think that's what Kyla's describing. And it's not easy. But everyone can find one thing. Develop an aim that you can say yes to, regardless of your daily life, regardless of your eyes arguing, regardless of if you have majority vote or not. You can find something to say yes to. And I'm giving this example of developing your aim for your work. And this aim changes as you mature. So it's not a static thing that stays the same. It changes. Okay. So never mind the kind of yeses that you're trying to struggle with. Forget that and just say yes to your aim. Don't waste your time on that other stuff. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Anyone else have some comments or some other angle, some circumstance that you just think that it's a tricky thing to handle that you're maturing with? Yes. So for me, the question comes up how to, not a how to, but if I work, yes, and I try to improve my work, be more present, pay attention to what I'm doing in the moment, be kind, endless, endless, endless. And it feels like I work on that every day. And I get more work and more work, and it gets more and more. And I wonder. Yeah, where's that going? Where's this path leading to? You know, is it just about more working, more trying to embody the teaching, more creating necessity, more of this, more being like endless? It's like, and I wonder what is this? What is this for? You know, what? Where is this going to? Somebody who goes always to McDonald's doesn't know how a gourmet meal tastes. So I just assume I'm doing all this and I just assume at some point I'm going to get to a gourmet meal here somewhere or, (laughs) you know. I understand what you're saying. And this happens to everyone. Everyone goes in and out of what I would call Sadhana fatigue, sadhana exhaustion. This is predictable because we all are striving and we're struggling and we're searching and wanting to achieve. And we have all of these practices. I remember when I was a young student, we were living on the ashram and me and some of the other people, we got together and made a list because we decided that we were going to be heroic and we were going to do every practice that Lee had ever taught. So we made a list and we we listed every practice we ever heard of. And we discovered that even if we never slept or ate, we could not do them all. We physically could not do them all. There was too many things to do. Don't you just get exhausted thinking of trying to do stuff about God or about the divine or about progressing on the path. Don't you just get tired of doing stuff about all those things and then you get exhausted. If you have experience with taking vitamins, for example, there's this thing called supplement fatigue. It means you're taking so many medicines and supplements, you're poisoning yourself with it or you're becoming fatigued. 
Your whole body chemistry becomes fatigued. So this happens to practitioners, even the best ones. It doesn't matter. This phenomena happens often or not. It's a personal affair, but sadhana exhaustion sets in. And you've got to wonder, what are we doing this for? I remember saying to Lee one time, you know, I've had this happen and that, and I've had this experience and that. I've studied all this stuff. And what's it good for? And he said, none of it is worth anything unless you allow the process to complete itself. And I was really serious because it was a similar vein. I'm doing all this stuff. And he said, there is no point to it. There is no value in it until or unless the process completes itself. So here is a clue. Now, this is a little esoteric, but this morning I was giving a talk to a few people. This is a much bigger group. I'm sure that it's going to be irritating to some of you. But in any case, there is a difference between what we would call destiny or fate. And I'm going to use language very particularly. We have destiny slash fate slash karma slash ordinary life pressures. And there's also something called possibility. Now, I'm not talking about how can you get self-improvement and more stuff for yourself. I'm talking about what's possible for a human being in this lifetime for this expansive nature of what we would call transformational processes. So on the one hand, we do have to align ourselves with this. We do have to create a foundation. We do have to put in our effort. We do have to work. It never stops. It never stops for the spiritual masters. It never stops for the gurus. It never stops for the wisest people we know. Ordinary life, which is part of sadhana, ordinary life, we've got to make decisions all the time. We've got to keep our mouth shut or not. We've got to say yes or no. We've got to be in relationship or not. So hopefully we grow in wisdom and we be that. It's not a blanket situation, but everyone has areas where you no longer struggle. You just be that. And we have a beautiful teaching in our lineage. It's called be that which nothing takes root in. And that sounds like somebody who just has a hard shell and doesn't get offended by anything. But that teaching of be that simply means, yes, you have to make decisions and handle daily life all the time. As long as you've got a body, you're in time and space and shit happens. That's how that department works. But there is this potential of a human being, which we're going to now call possibility. And the possibility for a human being in and through this transformational potential, the difference between potential and possibility, this word possibility is kind of hitting against that door, I think, of what's possible. You, you've got the scent. You know, the Sufis, the Sufis talk about the perfume of the beloved. Doesn't that sound nice? What if the perfume of the beloved, you know, we all have this image. Maybe it's like roses. Maybe it's like lilacs. Maybe the perfume of the beloved. Maybe it's like the best scent of food, our favorite food or something. What if the scent of the beloved was the worst smell imaginable? 
And we needed to be with that, or we needed to actually develop our senses so that we could appreciate the beauty of something that we felt was irritating, annoying, exhausting, stinky. Okay. So that's a silly cartoon that I'm painting here because I want to push us out of this exhausting struggle. Yes, we all have days and times where it's an exhausting struggle. The more we do self-observation, the more we might throw up our hands and go, this shit's hopeless. I can't even take a breath without observing something else. And we misuse self-observation to, to whack ourselves over the head all the time. And then we get more exhausted. So we must be asking, well, what the heck can we do? We're sincere. We're serious. We want to cultivate this. Like, where is the key that turns this lock? And part of this is find something that delights you, that's harmless to yourself and others, that really juices you. Find something that delights you. Maybe it's dance. Maybe it's art. Maybe it's singing. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's taking care of children. Maybe it's being of some kind of service. I always liked to grow plants. So one of my jobs on the ashram when I was living with Lee was growing food and growing plants. Because when I presented him with my thing, like, you know, on more than one occasion, I've done this, I've done that, I've got all this experience. What good is it? And on another occasion, not the occasion where he said there's no benefit until it completes itself. On another occasion, he said, find a project that you really like doing and involve as many other people as possible. And he says, don't go out of your way to get a giant bunch of people, but find out if anybody else is interested. So somebody needed to grow food, but some of us find that delightful. Other people thought, don't get my hands dirty. I don't want to grow anything. There's got to be something delightful. It doesn't have to be another meeting that you have to go to. It doesn't have to be another club or another group of people. It could be simply that what delights us is that we sit quietly in a pleasing spot somewhere. For me here on my ashram, we have such a beautiful land around us and so many strong, empowered spaces outdoors. It's easy anytime to go and sit somewhere and relax. But many of you live in cities. You live in urban areas. You know, you don't have the luxury that I have here. And it's easy. It's predictable. I say, this is just me, I say sadhana should not be a drudgery, exhausting, depressing affair. I don't believe that that is the outcome. If that's the outcome of sadhana, I think that we should cancel that plan. If I had to choose a plan, I would choose a friendly, playful sort of humorous plan because that's my personality likes that kind of thing other people don't and then you might have something else but we can find something that delights us and it doesn't have to be more stuff to do but it can be a thought or a sound or an old hound dog i am delighted with my dogs i have two dogs here on the afternoon we got two dogs one of them is pretty old and she's got arthritis and she's a little mentally confused. And I take really good care of her because if I ever get old and confused, I hope somebody takes care of me as good as I take care of that old dog. That's what I hope. Simple stuff. Simple stuff. 
Yes. Some of what you're talking about brings up a discussion I had with a neighbor a few days ago. Because I do my spiritual work. He's involved heavily with his spiritual group. He struck a chord with me because I've long felt that there's more to what I might do in life. And he brought up the subject with me. We talked at length about this. Okay, we've got our spiritual groups. We've got our spiritual life. But what more can we do to make the world a better place? With all the bad things going on in the world, is there anything else we can do to be helpful to the world? The only thing I came up with is to just start maybe a local discussion group about what's going on in the world, leave faith, politics, religion, spirituality out of it, but just a discussion group locally. But I thought this is a good group to throw that idea out to what else can we do to make the world a better place? We work on ourselves. We work within our group. What more is there? Is there more? Okay. So this is a very practical, useful question. All of you probably have had this question, what more can I do? So first of all, I would interject to change that phrase and say, what can I be? Because the doing department is ego's default. It's a good default. We want to do good stuff. It's really practical, very useful. We've got that covered. But a more useful phrase to ourselves is, what can I be? That kind of thing. And in that vein, as we cultivate this spiritual maturity, it's one of the potentials of a human being. We become a little bit, not doesn't even have to be a lot, but you know, it's a natural function to become a little bit alchemical in our makeup as we're practicing and as we're doing all this stuff and maturing, even just getting older. But I'm talking about alchemy in the sense of the literal changing of one substance into another. And what substance are we changing? We're changing ourselves. We're changing the very nature of our physical and subtle chemistry, which includes the thoughts, emotions, all the rest, the machinery, the human machinery. That's really many, many, many layers, that chamber. So there's a lot. This is a very big topic, but I'm just speaking to taking it from where you're sitting. There's no amount of words and discussion or new plans or more plans. None of that is as potent and priceless as taking time to be that, to be it. And then when you use your breath to make a word or an idea or a comment, literally your breath, your word to someone becomes part of what makes things better. And it's much more potent. And you've got the doing department well covered. I can see that you're a very kind and deliberate and thoughtful person. You know, we have lots of eyes. This is your comfort zone doing. You've got that covered. You mix it up. You're out there. You're doing stuff. You've joined the groups. You've got good friends. And this is your comfort zone. It's less comfortable being something because this means heat, heat, internal heat. Boy, does that become uncomfortable. This maturing business really gets, you know, in your face when you have to realize that 
you're building internal heat. It takes heat. This alchemy of, I'm going to say alchemy of transformation, because that phrase is in my mind. There's a book called Alchemy of Transformation. If any of you are interested, it's a really interesting, juicy book called Alchemy of Transformation. And some of these things are discussed in that small little book. It wouldn't take you too long. You wouldn't get exhausted, God forbid. So there you are. So that's a hard sell. If we call up our friends, our, our study group or something, and it's like, let's get together and be something, then we're already doing something. So what I'm suggesting is that you're at a point where you need to go deeper, not broader. So everyone's at different stages of life here. I know there's some people here are maybe 30. I see a couple of people here who I think are less than 30. Somebody like me, I think, okay, that's very, very young. But when I was 30, I didn't feel all that young. You know, I was out there working on myself like everyone else. But there comes a point where we've got to go deeper, not broader. And that could shift. Something might come to our attention. And then we have the capacity to be a little broader. But this is a tricky bit of ego. And I'm not saying this in a derogatory way, but I'm using this language very loose because, you know, it's a very short time that we have here together. Ego's agenda is to keep it really broad, keep us busy doing shit all day long about everything so that we are exhausted. We exhaust ourselves with too much talking. I'm one to talk. Here I am talking. Too much talking, unnecessary talking. We waste our resources on the internet through anger, through greed. We waste our resources trying to convince people of our opinions. This is ego's agenda to keep us tired and worn out and exhausted. So we can't be anything. We can barely poop and pee, you know, and brush our teeth. We're lucky. That's it, you know, the basics. So being that. You know, that takes some stamina, but I think you've got some stamina. And it isn't all about get all holy now and especially sacred or anything. It's just an area of work that I think would be very profitable to him where he's at. And maybe some of you might think, well, that kind of applies to you too. Many of you have the doing department well handled. So don't ask yourself that question anymore. What can I do? Don't ask yourself that question. Pay more attention to what can I be? This comes down to attention. Where do you place the attention of your eyes? Where do you place the attention of your breath? Where do you place the attention of your speech, of your heart, of your mood, of your physical body? Maybe we're a gardener and we're growing food for other people. That's a practical venue in which to be growing something, for example. But this can backfire. Because when I was a young teacher, I think I started teaching 1998. I'm looking at Jim here because he remembers. 1998, I started having my own students and teaching. And Lee kind of laughed at me a lot. And he was he was fierce with me a lot. He would say, oh, people want to see you fail. And it's going to be hard work. So we we need to be fierce also with ourselves. And this is really tricky because all of our eyes would love to be in control and be fierce on everybody. So once again, it's not about doing, it's about being. And this fierce nature, he would push me to take on projects and work with a lot of people. And even though I'm a chatty type and I don't have any trouble talking, my preference was to be on retreat. I had a retreat cabin in my backyard. I lived near the ashram. I had a retreat cabin. 
And he was often fiercely saying, go do this for me, go do that, or help me with this or that. But on the other hand, when I would go out and do projects, when I would come back, he said, when you come back to your home, then you go into retreat. And he helped me do this. He helped me define my retreat space. And I had the luxury to explore and investigate being. In my lineage, we have a practice, we call it retreat practice. And I don't know if you've ever done that. Just to get your toe in the water and find out, okay, how could I even investigate some part of my being that I don't even know exists yet? Okay. So, you know, you need some basic retreat instruction, something really simple that you could just try out. When someone is just getting the idea what can I be? That's a worthy question. That question has some wisdom. I have a little, I call it a mantra. I don't know if it's really a mantra. I made it up and it's something that we repeat all the time. So it's kind of like a mantra. And the mantra goes like this. I welcome that which you would have me serve. And the you in this phrase is whatever you think your biggest helper is. God or an angel or your inner self or whatever. I welcome that which you would have me serve. I welcome that which you would have serve me. So it's a two-part mantra. Then I would sit quietly internally. I might be busy all day long. I've got a lot of responsibilities and I'm always doing something. So there's the outward activity, but inwardly I am alert. Nothing's going to get by Lali. You know, she's watching. I said this mantra a couple of times. We watch. The more you use that, I welcome that which you would have me serve. I welcome that which you would have serve me. The more you work with that, it gives a signal to the universe. The universe will not take you seriously. This is an important secret here. The universe will not take you seriously unless you are taking yourself and your sadhana seriously and giving a serious signal. So this is risky. This could be uncomfortable. What you're risking is the very identity of who you thought you were. Nice, kind, going to the meetings and doing the study and you have your comfort zone, you know, and then you got your home and your yard or whatever you've got, you know, and you're all good there. And next thing you know, what happened to me? An old dog shows up. And I was thinking, no, I was thinking, I welcome that, which you would have me serve. And God's maybe going to send me a personal letter and say, Lali, you know, you should go on TV with a special hat and promise to heal everybody. Or No, it's an old dog that shows up. So in our ordinary lives, this is an area. What more can we do to make the world better? We can be that. What more can I be? And that is fiery. That's out of your comfort zone. That's something you haven't tried yet. And of course, we can't convince our neighbors that now they have to be something too. This is a private affair. I've got all these little phrases that I use as reminders. Maybe I'm getting so old, so I have to remind myself with phrases, or maybe they're handy, who knows? But there's three things that speak to everyone's personal work. If we develop these three things, we would really increase our capacity to be and it's hold our seat be invisible stay alive as long and strong as possible 
why stay alive as long and strong as possible so that we can produce kindness, so that we can produce generosity, so we can produce service. Otherwise, just drop dead today. Who cares? So hold your seat. Take stamina to do that and not be knocked off of this opinion, that opinion. There's never been a time in history where the world hasn't had wars and famine and people killing each other and horrible stuff everywhere. So I have this news channel I like to watch. It's called Good News Network. If you get to the wrong Good News Network, it's either a .com or a .org. You're either going to go to the Christian Evangelist Department or you're going to go to the Good News Department. And there's wonderful stuff going on all over the world. And it's not just schmoozy, emotional stuff. It's really great technologies and science and kindness and all kind of wonderful stuff to actually fill our body mind. If we want to help the world, usually we're thinking about all the horrible stuff and it's exhausting. The horrible stuff department is well covered. There's no lack of horrible stuff. There's never been a lack of horrible stuff. Even after we're all dead, there's the next batch of horrible stuff. Of course, we have to be responsible. Of course, we interact with it when it's right in front of us. But if we're saying, I welcome that, which you would have me serve, we stay alert. We watch. What comes to our attention? The neighbor comes to our attention. Our study group comes to our attention. An old dog comes to our attention. Our wife, our husbands, our children come to our attention. So my latest book that I wrote, it's called Prayers and Presence. It's a little book. My students decided they wanted to put some of these phrases all together in a book. They made this wonderful book that people are finding very useful. It's called Prayers and Presence. You can't get it from a publisher. We published a bunch and people just write to us and then somebody mails them one. I think that the belief that we can do something to really make a difference without having fully been able to actually be serious about our own inner work. So of course, we all do good stuff all the time. We live based on what we know the best we can. But now we're talking about cultivating spiritual maturity. So that implies a much deeper work much fiery and out of our comfort zone. What would it look like to go on his first retreat ever? Like, what the heck would you do instead of be? And what would that be like? I always suggest for people to try out two days of silence and no technology at home. From Friday night to Monday morning, silence and no technology. And you arrange ahead of time how the food is going to be handled. Try this retreat thing out at home. You don't have to go to a retreat center to start off with. You don't have to be all alone for two weeks in a tent. Start at home. Silence and no technology. Just that. Even just that once a month. It's extraordinary. Eye-opener. Okay, anyone have something else you'd like to say or bring up here? Lalit. Many people uh, probably feel like they have necessity and that the universe will provide what they need. Um, Why would anyone look for help from elsewhere, like from a teacher? Especially given that so many of them seem to be untrustworthy or you hear all these stories and like that. But if you get out of your comfort zone for a minute and you just consider the possibility, okay, 
maybe you don't know anybody or it just hasn't come across your path. Like, what would you look for in a good teacher? What are qualities of a real teacher? I've known some real teachers that were so irritating, <laughs> I could hardly stand to be in their company. But I knew they were very skilled. They were actually accountable. So first thing is, is the teacher accountable? Is there any accountability? There are so many do-it-yourselfers that just assign themselves. You know, I'll be a teacher. I personally, I make a very big distinction between the guru function and the teaching function. Someone who's serving a guru function in the world might also be teaching. But a teacher is not necessarily serving the guru function. So need to be a little educated about what it is we're looking for. Would we like a meditation teacher? Would we like some instruction if there's a particular area where we find the study particularly useful? I'm thinking of Buddhist texts for me. You know, I like Chinese texts. I like Taoism as one of my personal interests. So we might want to get teachings from a particular style or teacher or school. And if we want to develop more than just, well, I'm coming to teaching and it's kind of democratic and it's all a great vote here, but I want to go the next step. Now we're talking about a teacher-student relationship. So that's a little more risky. The teacher-student relationship, it can be an extraordinary help and it's a little more risky. You've got to put your ass on the line. You've got to investigate these things. And some of us, investigate our whole life and then we drop because we cannot decide on anything. We're too nervous to decide on anything. But what are some of the qualities? Accountability is a quality. It doesn't hurt if you like the person. I have my guru, Lee Lazowick, but before I met him, I had different teachers. And most of the time I tended, we all tend to find teachers or groups that we like. We like the type of people that are there. We like the personality of the person. But I've also gotten some really good help from personalities, teachers, skilled teachers that I really did not personally like their style or I didn't like their personality. But I had some discrimination by then because I had experience. So I could say, okay, you know, I'm a strong person and I have some discrimination and I can risk a bad mood or I can risk trying to develop a teacher-student relationship. And if it goes bad, okay, I'm not going to feel like a victim. I'm just going to stop, put it down, walk away. So we develop the stamina to risk a little bit. And when we get to a point in our sadhana where we really want to get more serious, we are going to need help in any artful endeavor. Spiritual work is an artful endeavor. And in any artful endeavor, the serious student needs to submit themselves to a teacher. I like to read biographies and stuff. And I used to read about great artists like Michelangelo and as an example, and all about how apprenticeship programs were done in the Renaissance period, for example. And you read about apprenticeship and I'm bringing up apprenticeship because the teacher-student relationship is a type of apprenticeship. That's one way to look at it. And the apprentice comes and the teacher says, 
we all hear about this. Well, you sweep the floor and clean the toilet, and that goes on for a few years. Or if we studied Buddhist teachings, the Tibetan Buddhists, we hear about Milarepa, and he gets told, build a stone house over and over and over, and then they knock it down, and then they build it again. So none of us find those kinds of ideas very attractive, but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about apprenticing to something that's going to take effort and submission to the will of a teacher's art form. So if we wanted to learn painting, would we go to the master painter and say, please teach me painting, but I only like blue and yellow. I, you know, I'm only really available between one and two o'clock in the afternoon. That would not be a very productive apprenticeship. If we wanted to learn horse racing and we go to the horse racing teacher and say, well, I don't really like the smell of horses and I don't want to clean the horse stall, but will you let me take out your most expensive racehorse in this race because I want my friends to see what a cool jockey I am? The horse racing master is just probably going to kick you right out. So there's a give and take in this and everyone gets to decide what level of risk. And I don't mean unhealthy risk. I mean wise discriminating, strong risk capacity. I'm not talking about unhealthy risk. I'm not talking about victimization. I'm not talking about submitting yourself to a dangerous will of somebody who's telling you to harm yourself. But there is a place for apprenticeship, for the teacher-student relationship. And of course, a lot can go wrong. I have a couple of ex-students who are really mad at me because one person feels like I ruined their best boyfriend relationship. One of my students who I still have, by the way, when he was a young man, he said that my teaching was ruining his dating life because he could never go out on dates anymore and just try to have sex on the first date because he was developing a lot of inner stamina and force in his sadhana. And he was very seductive. And he said, I wouldn't, I just go out to dinner and look at the girl and say something. And then they want to come home with me. He said, it was never like that before. So now I have to have discrimination. Sometimes the ego comes up with the most ridiculous excuses for why an apprenticeship is not going to work. And this is why it takes a little stamina. Could we risk not having sex on the first day because we got a little spiffed up from our sadhana. Everything usually starts with the most ordinary life habits that get confronted and get worked with. And we all start wherever we can, whatever our interest level is, whatever our stamina is. And you know, we could try out, I welcome that which you would have me serve. And when we get to the part, I welcome that which you would have serve me. And somebody invites us to a talk like this. You know, there's some really fine Dharma teachers in Arizona, regardless of if you want to have a real teacher-student relationship or not. There are some really fine resources already available. You can start however you want. But if you're interested in teacher-student relationships, then you need to investigate lineages where that is part of the practice. And you've got to know that that is more fiery than a path where you casually come and go and everybody votes and et cetera. I would think that it would be more fiery because you end up seeing things about yourself that you haven't seen. Yes. Yeah. See things about yourself that you haven't seen. For instance, I just said, well, 
have you ever been on a retreat? He says, no, I never tried that. He's probably been doing lots of practices for years and he knows all kinds of stuff and he's got wisdom just from experience. He's got wisdom. He chose a good partner. He's got support. So somebody suspicious like me, I have to wonder what's up over there. He never even thought of this. I don't buy it. So it's out of his comfort zone. I say this with good feeling and a smile because that's not something bad about anybody that we don't think of the very thing that we long for. We long for help. And some of our eyes are terrified of help. We want to really deepen our practice, but we don't really want to change. Change. That's a big deal breaker. That's a big deal breaker. Change. (sighs) We don't like it. Well, yeah. And we talk about going deeper on the path. But it seems like without that, it may not happen. May not happen. May not happen. No, we don't have to go and try to win the guru lottery or anything. We could access wisdom of people who we see that the fruit of their practice has produced something that we like. We don't have to go and necessarily find the bestest, strongest teacher this minute. Never mind the guru function. That's a whole additional thing. But we could. Look around and see whose practice, whose spiritual practice has produced fruit that looks like it has some wisdom there. That's good company. That's worth cultivating right there. The podcast, all the different people that get hosted, there's a lot of good company available and that's priceless. And if you're keeping bad company, Of course, we all have people that either support or don't support, et cetera, et cetera. It's not about that. But if we're keeping company and therefore creating an environment that supports our aim, that's priceless. So we look around and we find, oh, okay, what's a fruit of practice? It's somebody who seems to us to produce being, maybe some compassion, maybe some kindness, maybe some just good common sense. Maybe those are the kind of people we keep company with. We can absorb from that. I call that borrowing. We can borrow from each other the fruits of our sadhana. The tricky bit is we unconsciously might borrow some nasty bits, but we get smarter. We get smarter and more clever and we watch. We may go, okay, I don't want to talk as fast as Lalit, but I wouldn't mind knowing how to use herbs or something. It could be, well, I don't want to end up with that habit, but maybe these other qualities of some person that we know are worth borrowing, using, having empathy with. But this question of the teacher-student relationship is always very confrontive to so many different eyes, especially to Westerners. I asked Parvati Babu, she's my good friend. Some of you have met her. She's a Bengali woman, spiritual master, and she's a wonderful teacher. And she and I talk about these things sometimes. She was visiting here, and I was giving some teachings about managing the mind. And she said, we never discuss these kinds of things in India so much, managing the mind. She said, we don't talk like that, and we don't study that. She said, it's so useful. And I said, well, how do people you know, work with their mind? And she says, well, in India, everybody's just taught to obey and they expect to obey and 
they obey. And I go, how do you, how do you do that? You know, how do you get, get obey? And she said, well, it's our culture. So it's easier to get somebody to obey than work with their mind. And in our culture, it's easier to get somebody to work with managing their mind than to obey. So part of this risk factor is cultural. It's not even logical. It's not even reasonable. It's just whatever silly habit we grew up with that now defines our comfort zone. And again, when I say comfort zone, I'm not saying that we should take risks on our life or do things that make us feel terrible. When I say step out of your comfort zone, I'm talking about your dearly held beliefs, the habits and opinions that we hold. And we ask ourselves edgy questions. What can I be? Where can I serve? And where can you serve? You serve what's in front of you. You don't need to go out and save the world. If that was our job, then we would have the skill for that and it shows up and that's what we do. But most of us, we would be well served to hold our seat, be invisible, live long and strong for practice. We would better serve by being that then thinking of more stuff to do, more exhausting, overwhelming stuff to do. So the capacity to stay, to stay here. Anybody else have any comments or anything else you'd like to bring up? I think that it's an equal risk. It's as much a risk to say, I am enough. It is enough that that can be as risky and as much work to really sit in, like there's nowhere to go, there's nothing to attain, it's already complete, and I am enough. That's kind of how I'm approaching things these days. Yeah. It's kind of the being like you're talking about. So I don't, wondered if you wanted to say anything more about that. Okay. <laughs> I have an opinion about everything. So I have an opinion about this. So my opinion about I am enough is that I think that that has some wisdom. And here's the caveat. If we're practicing, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, I'm just listening to the guru within. That's a very high teaching, this whole guru within business. That's a very difficult high teaching that presupposes that you've got a guru within. Everybody thinks it's a new agey thing from long ago. I have a guru within and I'm going to listen to that. Well, mostly what we've got is a very loud, neurotic mind voice. And we like it. Our guru tells us to get a new car every year and I'm listening to the guru within. So years ago, I was wondering about this. Where did this teaching come from? And it's in many traditions, listening to the guru within and it's considered a very high teaching. And even it goes along with, I am enough. I think that that is absolutely a heart teaching. It's a powerful, wise teaching. And it's not a lazy man path. It's difficult to even wrap your mind around, I am enough. Or wrap your mind around, just be that. Wrap your mind around these ideas. This phrase that I've often heard is, well, I'm listening to the guru within. Which guru? Which I? Which thing is pushing you at any given moment? 
the whole teaching presupposes that you even have a guru within. And I have to say that I'll brag for myself. I'm a very astute observer because of my training as a healer. And what most people call the guru within is their comfort zone. So you could only say, well, we can say whatever we want, but I think this guru within business and I am enough business does not excuse us from doing our personal work. Be that. What can I be? If you really get that, not a lazy man path. This group is called DIY Yoga, Do-It-Yourself Yoga. It's all kind of people. Some of them are very charismatic, a lot of very strong personalities. I've never been to their meeting, but I used to have some students that would go and they would tell me about this, some you know, really smart, intelligent, strong personalities, and they were going to do it all themselves. And this touches on having help. These things tie in together. I am enough. I'm listening to the guru within. There comes a point where we know that we've been kidding ourselves. And it would be nice to have some help to broaden our view. And good friends, good company can do this. This is why study groups are good. If you've got a good study group leader, if you've got some good company there, anything that can help to have some refreshing of the stagnant condition of our comfort zone. 